Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guests this week are Samuel Bonder and Linda Groves Bonder. And I'll introduce them briefly by reading uh, short paragraphs from their website, and then in the course of the interview, they'll, you'll get to know them a lot better. So Samuel is the author of Healing the Spirit Matter Split and the founder of the Waking Down and Mutuality work. He has been a pioneer in the widespread embodiment and mutual evolutionary exploration of awakened consciousness for over a decade, probably more than over a decade now since this was written. Linda Groves Bonder is Samuel's full-time partner in the White Hot Yoga of the Heart Transmission and Teachings and a founding and senior teacher of the Waking Down in Mutuality work. Uh, Linda is also a professional singer and songwriter. Uh, so thank you very much both for joining me in this. As people who listen to the show probably know, I've interviewed, I think, about seven people who are waking down in mutuality teachers, the Gilberts, the Boggs, Ted Strauss, and Hilary Davis, and uh, Sandra Glickman. And I all have really enjoyed all those interviews, and I'm, I'm sure I and, and the listeners are going to enjoy this one very much. Mm. Our pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for having us on this. this is oh, great. you're welcome. Um, so what I'd like to do in the course of this interview um, is have you both sort of recount your own spiritual journeys um, in you know as much detail as you feel is significant, and and then we'll kind of lead up to what you're teaching now and you know what you would really like to convey to people about your work and what you teach and you know how they can participate in it and so on. So let's do that. And uh, who would like to go first? Well. Since we've got a little time to play with here, I'll ask you a question back. Sure. If Linda goes first, you get an immediate take on what the work is, and if I go first, then we go back into some more ancient history a bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what would you prefer? What do well, you I don't really care, but let, why, don't, uh, why don't you go first, because then, okay. then when you'll be talking about the work, and then she'll talk about it, and somehow it'll probably all work out best that way. And of course, as you're telling your story, Linda can interject anytime she wants, and I may, I'll probably interject with some questions. Yeah, okay. that's great. Okay. Okay, well, great. Yeah, happy happy to do so. Uh, I think the, the place to start for me is I never was consciously spiritual as a child or, you know, in my teenage years. Uh, though when I had my bar mitzvah, I was raised Jewish, when I had my bar mitzvah, afterward, uh, everybody else was dancing and partying at the reception, and I was out on the front lawn crying, hmm. uh, my father holding me, and we, we assumed it was because of all the stress. A lot, a lot had gone on that time in my life, but uh, years later, after going through the shift or awakening that led to my work, it dawned on me that really I had been looking for that bar mitzvah to be at the soul level, a real connection with the divine, mm -hmm. and when that didn't happen, uh, there was a deep disappointment that I, I couldn't really know at the time. Huh. So you wouldn't have been able to articulate that to your father at the time, but, no. but look, looking back, you figured out that's what it was. Yeah, and I, I wasn't able to articulate it even until I was in my 40s, had awakened, and, and I was able to make sense of my whole existence better. Hmm. Uh, really, the, my spiritual quest began when I was uh, 19, going into 20, uh, I was uh, a student at Harvard in the late 60s, <laughs> went there from a small little tiny town 
uh, actually much smaller than Fairfield in Tennessee, mm-hmm. uh, where I went to a prep school, and suddenly I'm in this uh, giant maelstrom of Cambridge and Boston and SDS and uh, counterculture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was, so it was it was pretty shocking transition in many ways. And I became active as one of the student protesters and so forth. Uh, mm-hmm. But that was my first year. My second year when I came back, I already was not able to do that anymore. Mm. Uh, the major reason was that this insight had awakened. that I hadn't read any books. Nobody told me about it. It just came to me very naturally, a recognition that it was as if everybody was on the inside of a cage of mirrors. And we were only able to occasionally make contact actually see another person and everybody seemed to me to be so self-absorbed whether it was a student activist like myself uh, university administrators police you know all the people on all the sides of all the issues it was a, a, a such a sobering recognition that I knew I had to find some way to break out of that cage hmm. And the only way I could imagine would be through finding divine grace of some kind, mm-hmm. God's help, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I began, I, I don't even remember if I exactly prayed per se, because I didn't have a direct knowing that there was a divine. But there was this feeling of, I sure hope you exist, because <laughs> I need some serious help here. And somehow that feeling just welled up spontaneously it, it and just, naturally it just came up i mean yeah. I, I you know i don't know when exactly it, it crystallized but i know by the time i got back to uh school the for my sophomore year i was i was out of i was no longer capable of getting into protests and trying to make things change and and the feeling that i had was that if i didn't negotiate this transition in myself anything I would be doing would be, in effect, cosmetic. It's interesting. Yeah, a lot of young people, of course, have that sort of restlessness and realization that something's wrong, but a lot of them, most of them, I don't think, give it a subjective uh, slant the way you did. You know, they, 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 they think mainly in terms of changing the system or changing the, the, out, the outer circumstances. Right, and that's, that's what, that insight, you know, everybody's living in a cage of mirrors here, pretty much wiped me off the map of fixing the outside and feeling that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Not that there weren't problems. I never really have ceased to have a, a kind of activist orientation to social change and all the rest of it, environment, you name it. But that became the guiding impulse. And so then I went through a period of uh, being exposed to the beat poets, and I remember the electric Kool-Aid acid test was a major book for me, and I remember reading it and feeling at the end of it, oh, wow, all the good stuff has already happened. I'm too late. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, and a particularly important influence for me at that time was Martin Buber. Hmm. Did you take some drugs also? I mean, reading Ken oh, Kesey? I, def- did- I definitely took some drugs. Uh, right. I had my share of, uh-huh. uh, you know, marijuana and various psychedelics and so uh-huh. forth. But Buber's teaching was very interesting. It, it really locked me into the importance of I-thou or relationship to the other. Hmm. And after a while, however, uh, and this is on into uh, sometime in my sophomore year there, after a while, 
it became apparent to me that that wasn't going to be enough. I needed direct access to something more complete, full, infinite. I don't remember exactly how I languaged it to myself, but people had been saying to me, uh, you know, you should really check out the Eastern wisdom. It's, you know, a big part of what's happening. And I, I remember saying probably later, but not now. Well, at that point, it became uh, important to turn to the East. Actually, it was, it was uh, after, it was in the summer of my sophomore year, I'd, I'd done a uh, Colorado Outward Bound course. And when mm-hmm. I came down from the mountains in Colorado, that was when I felt, okay, time to plug in. And this was in Boulder. It was a Mecca Oh, yeah. of counterculture and spirituality. Ram Dass was coming through frequently and so on. Still kind of is. And yes, right. still kind <laughs> of is. What and, were you uh, majoring yeah. in, by the way? What's that? What were you majoring in at Harvard? They had a combination of uh, what they called social relations. It was sociology, psychology, and anthropology sort of mushed up together. Okay. It didn't last much longer, but that's what my degree was in. Okay, back to Boulder. So back to Boulder, and this is uh, still my after my sophomore year of college. Uh, I read the book Autobiography of a Yogi over about three days, mm-hmm. staying at a friend's house who was out of town. And immediately after I read the book, I was lying there and I was about to go to sleep, and I had the thought, I wonder if yoga is going to be part of my path. Because it was such a, as it was for many people, and I notice you've got the book actually on your bookshelf right behind you. <laughs> For so many of us, at least in our generation, it was what opened the door to there is a whole other world here. Yeah. Along with (laughs) things like acid and mescaline and and so on. But it really showed that there is a tremendous history and tradition for all this. And so that was my question. Is yoga going to be part of my path? And then I, I heard this oscillating sound and listened to it. Just came out of nowhere and suddenly shot up. Hmm. There was a sense internally of like being on a rocket going up of energy and there was a bursting through into some other kind of environment like a dream space or a vision and then bursting beyond that. Hmm. And the next thing that I knew was I was coming back down into the body as a kind of a flash of light. And my immediate thought was, okay, I guess yoga is going to be part of my path. <laughs> There's your answer. <laughs> That's yes. <laughs> Let's do that again, right? <laughs> well, yeah, that was very much the feeling of how do I get back to that? And fairly quickly, I realized reading Yogananda's literature, okay, this must have been a spontaneous, what he called nirvikalpa samadhi, a formless ecstasy of union with the divine, whatever. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know that it was God, but I knew that it was utterly beyond description mm-hmm. and blissful and I really wanted back as Linda was just saying and so that was what set me on the path and I figured my feeling though however was very much along the lines of what Yogananda was talking about if you get really good at this you can have full access to that state anytime and you can always be really in touch with it grounded mm-hmm. in it so that became my quest and you know, to kind of scoot through things. I don't want to go into endless detail, but uh, I went to India. I was studying with a an Indian yogi who at the time was fairly well known in America uh, and was in India a, a radical activist. I wanted something that had social activism mm-hmm. uh, as- associated with it. And 
the time I spent in India proved not to be the path that I had started on, which was a Kundalini yoga path. Uh, eventually, I began to feel, you know, at the rate I'm going, I'm never going to get my Kundalini above my navel <laughs> again. And having had that blowout, I knew what it could be like. Was that Yogi Bhajan that you were studying? Uh, no, it was uh, the yogi who uh, started Ananda Marga. I don't know if you... Oh, right. I've heard of that. Sure. Okay. Well, I mean, it was a lot of adventure that, you know, this is not the time to try to go into all the detail. Sure. But... Um, the main next transition was I began to feel the Kundalini process was not going to... I needed something that would be more direct. It seemed to me that if the self was myself, I should be able to have access to it much more readily, even if I needed to mature in it. Gradually, uh, I found my way to Ramana Maharshi's teachings. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember just picking up his little pamphlet, Who Am I?, with a picture of him as a 17-year-old or 20-year-old awakened kid, and just those coal black eyes burning from the photograph. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I gotta find out what this guy's about. And shortly, I think later that day or the very next day, I found a book of his teachings, the collected teachings, tried the meditation of self-inquiry, and I know a lot of your viewers and listeners are familiar with that tradition. And also, particularly his thing about the right side of the heart, yeah, which didn't make any sense to me because I was under the impression that oh, the heart is over here on the left side of the chest. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that anatomically the heart actually straddles the center. Uh, but you know, I tried the meditation, and during that meditation, there was uh, what felt like an infinitesimal white-hot fire or light in the core of my heart, just leaped forward and up. And there was a sense of bliss that came through from that. And the feeling there never really went away. And, of course, then I felt, okay, I must be close to enlightenment. So I was really doing a lot of meditating and self-inquiry for a couple of years. That then led me to recognize that I needed a living guru. and uh, But it had to be someone who had realized the heart. And... In 1973, I found the teachings of then known as Bubba Frijan, eventually Da Frijan, Adi Da. Mm -hmm. And that was his main statement from the opening of his first book, I Am That Heart. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, here's an American, just a half a generation older than me, just starting his teaching work. You know, I felt indescribably blessed and uh, in fairly short order came out to California from New Orleans where I'd been teaching. Uh, school teaching, and became a member of Adidas community. And to make a great big long story extremely short, there were further openings, various other spiritual awakenings that took place, many of them very powerful. Um, and a lot of work with my human self. And he had a very different orientation to where the spiritual process is leading and going and so on. We may, may get into that or not. But uh, after 19 years or so, it became evident to me that I was no longer really fitting there. And much more sobering than that, he had lost faith that I was among those who might likely awaken in this lifetime on his path. And I began to individuate in such a way that uh, I, I felt like I had lost my moorings 
uh, of really the earliest training in my life from my parents uh, and my my mentors at the the uh, school I went to, the high school, uh, which was pretty much basic human stuff, personal integrity, you know, honor. Uh, I felt I had so over-devoted, so tried to, to surrender everything that I, I had lost my anchor mm. in simple things like honesty, trying to do the right thing for the guru all the time and so forth. And I'm not saying everybody there was living that way, but I sure was. And so there were some arguments that I wound up having with my teacher at a certain point there. And... To make the long story very short, uh, at a certain point, I just realized I can't stay. I've, I, I would rather have my own integrity as a man than stay plugged into this field of grace, even though I felt he truly was the great divine incarnation of the age. I mean, that hmm. was, I, I wrote his biography. Do you still feel that, that he was? No. Mm -hmm. I feel he was a very, very great and paradoxical and uh, challenging uh, realizing in the sense that his his work is is an important gift to humanity mm -hmm. uh, I'm very clear on that and once I left you know I haven't really told that story I'll try to tell it quickly too uh -huh. once I left as it turns out my awakening process kicked into very high gear within a few short months I had gone through what felt to me like the great incarnating of that awakened condition that I'd been seeking all those years. I've seen that quite a bit here in Fairfield uh, among people who were, you know, hook, line, and sinker in the TM movement for decades. And, um, you know, then they kind of distance themselves and perhaps reevaluate all their assumptions and, and kind of like tr start trying out some different things. And, and very often they, they quickly come into a, an awakening. And I don't know which is the cart and which is the horse, you know, whether it's because they've left, they've awakened, or because they're about to awaken that, that, you know, the chick is pecking out of its shell and ready to leave the incubator. And so they feel the inclination to leave. Yeah. And, and maybe it's both end. I think it's a yeah, both end. Definitely. Yeah. I think, I think it's a developmental readiness. And certainly it was our way for me. Yeah. And, and so, you know, looking back, I mean, he's a pretty complex figure. But from my point of view, what he and, uh, and others and the whole history of tradition are now making possible is what we call a democratization of these awakened conditions. And it's happening in a variety of ways. I mean, you know, a show like yours, uh, Buddha at the Gas Pump, uh, even if they, they didn't have the Internet... But even if they'd had something like it, that wasn't happening in the old world. It was only right. a few in any generation who would break through. And now yeah, that's... and they could only walk so many miles in a lifetime. You yeah, know? That's right. <laughs> Before we leave the topic of Adida, when I was interviewing Sandra, maybe a year ago, you know, she referred to him as a, a great tantric. And I didn't want to say anything at the time because it just felt rude or something. And I don't want to be rude now, but... Um, uh, go ahead. Okay. Um, you know, I once had a conversation with a fellow whom, whom I'm sure you know, who was with him for 17 years and who left because Adida was sleeping with the guy's wife, to put it euphemistically. And apparently that was not uncommon. And he, he kind of ticked off a laundry list of things that Adida was into that, you know, would be considered by most people pretty uh, hedonistic or immoral. You know, my way of understanding that does not necessarily mean he wasn't awakened, but the thought crossed my mind that perhaps that paradox was instrumental in your 
emphasis on and enthusiasm for a balanced development in which not only the, the sort of the inner awakening is clear, but that the whole relative structure of the personality is developed and, and is in accordance with decency and moral principles and, you know, compassion and kindness and all, all those sorts of things. And do you think I'm, I'm barking up the right tree with that observation? That's pretty much how I feel and how we feel. You know, my looking back on my guru's life and work, it's bittersweet. Yeah. A lot of people were, were damaged by that quote-unquote crazy wisdom. And of mm. course, he isn't the only one who presumed that imperial divine right of the guru to interact with people in all kinds of challenging ways uh, with the intent of uh, challenging and overturning the ego, you know, breaking through the boxes of people's conditioning. Yeah. But my, my sense is that uh, there was uh, an enormous amount of uh, collateral human damage in those approaches, and and that uh, characters like Adi Da, Chogyam Trungpa, uh, Bhagwan Rajneesh, Osho, uh, you know, they made something possible. They were like crazy flamethrowers, or mm -hmm. you know, the guys who crossed over the Rockies uh, before the, the you know the Conestoga wagons. Right. They they opened something up for us, and we we're in their debt. But on the other hand, they didn't provide models for creating society together or for, for even being a sane and whole human being related to others. Part of our perception is how many people can be a king or a queen in their own world of subjects. It doesn't work. So if we're relating to one another as equals, you know, whether the other person is as quote-unquote realized as you are or not, then some of these laws of human decency and other ways of interacting with one another come into play that much more. And at a deeper level, as you were implying, Rick, really there's a question of what does realization itself amount to and what other kinds of growth do we need in order to be whole and sane and capable of the most optimal ways of interacting? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Ken Wilber's lines of development idea yeah, was, come, comes to mind, you know, where a person could be quite far advanced along a certain line, you know, maybe the, the self-realization line, but really deficient <laughs> in some other lines. And there may be a tendency both for that person and for that person's followers to rationalize those deficiencies as some sort of cosmic play or something. You know, and maybe they are in, you know, the old paradox thing, probably they are, but at the same time, it's equally valid to view them as areas that this person would have been better off, you know, looking at and, and working on and, and resolving. Yes. Absolutely. I was going to say exactly that, Rick. I was going to bring in the levels and lines aspect, which you just did so beautifully. Thank you. Obviously, there were, it feels to me that in these cases, there may have been some of the weaknesses and uh, difficulties in their own personal development, but they couldn't go there, perhaps. You know? Yeah, especially once they've become famous to a certain degree, you know, and, and it's really hard to say, wait a minute, I screwed up, you know, let's, let's kind of re-examine re everything here and I'm going to change my ways. And it's, it, you get really invested in your you know, status and, and in the adulation that your followers throw at you, and it, it might be a little hard to back out of that. Yeah, I would say actually that there's an even stronger kind of governor for those kinds of characters. They had to be ex 
extremely willing to risk everything to achieve their own realization. Hmm. You know, if you look at the, particularly those more outstanding characters who, who were mavericks, who took huge risks and, and set things up in new ways, that force of how they did it became the only way they could trust living. And so it just kept right on going. Uh, Interesting, and, yeah. And they, and they weren't really in a position to know that there were other choices they could make after a certain point. Yeah, so they and, sort of had a damn the torpedoes, full steam ahead yeah, <laughs> way I of mean, living. It's something like that. You know, having written uh, Adi Da's biography in 1989-90, I mean, I knew his life story pretty much inside and out, at least up to that point. And, you know, he, he, he was... Uh, in some ways, uh, from this perspective, there's a kind of tragic heroism there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I, I, I have uh, enormous appreciation. I mean, my work would not have been possible without him, without Ramana, without these other influences, without Martin Buber, who balanced out the, you know, don't overrule the other. Don't, don't be so self-radiant that you can't actually encounter the other and let the other be really other. Don't mm -hmm. make your self-realization include the whole world such that everybody else is just a, almost a figment of your imagination. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I've seen that happen, actually, um, where a so-called enlightened person, who probably really is enlightened, dismisses the world as illusory, illusion so easily or so readily that he feels justified and treating people like pawns, you know, exactly. uh, and, you know, just toying with people's lives in, in ways which, you know, are just really not, from an ordinary perspective, not appropriate or not kind. Yeah. Uh, to finish it up, shortly after I left, this awakening process just jumped into high gear. I really was primed by everything that had happened. The elements of that process, speaking of the tantric aspect, one side of it, yes, was uh, suddenly there was much more capacity to complete the investigation of consciousness directly, which I just thrilled to do because I'd been working with that since the early 70s from my exposure to Ramana Maharshi. Mm -hmm. And the other side that was extremely important uh, that I didn't figure out actually till after I had awakened was that the Shakti, the goddess, came into my life and grabbed hold of me. It was as if, uh, you know, and you, you got to speak in code here. It wasn't like I was walking down the street holding hands. But it wasn't like there was nothing happening either. And uh, I later had just the very strong feeling that the great feminine principle person presence wants to participate. If we can give her... If we, if we can project a want and need onto her, which admittedly, we're, language is failing here, but she wants the uniqueness of each and every one realized. And this, you know, we talk about in our work, mutuality, this democratization, this flowering of many, many people, which, you know, we have language coming from the traditions like Jesus, you know you know, you will all be sons and daughters of God and do greater things than I. So there's, there's been an expectation, it's wired into us, that many will flower. And the era of the singular great heroes and heroines is 
uh, I think, rapidly coming to an end. So once that awakening took place, which was just a few months after I left Adidas' work, uh, and the transmission aspect kicked into gear, which I understood very well from having been around him, and also the, the other great yogis and sages who I had uh, encountered, uh, including Ramana Maharshi, uh, Neem Karoli Baba, you know, there were a number of them. You met him too? Yes. Uh -huh. uh, and, and uh, you know, I understood clearly, okay, the transmission process is activated, and my feeling was, if I could awaken after having, in Das language, risked hellish karmas for lifetimes to, for some reason, go out and be an ego again, <laughs> uh, you know, if I could awaken under that, that kind of uh, challenge to my whole being, my soul, anybody with a strong desire ought to be able to and let's Johnny Appleseed this thing. Let's get as many people awake as we can get and really shift the landscape, you know, really investigate what, what, what is baby and what's bathwater in terms of these traditions, in terms of these assumptions. Mm -hmm. Even the assumption of what enlightenment is or what wholeness is, what sanity is, frankly. You know, let's, let's dwell for a moment. Everything. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, let's dwell for a moment on your actual awakening because you kind of glossed over that a little bit. So you, you left Adida and with it, you said within a few months you awakened. Yeah. What actually did you experience or undergo in those few months? Uh, well, um, uh, first off, uh, there was uh, there there was a clear uh, question in my mind when I left. I knew I had to regain my own integrity as a human being, and I wasn't sure I would ever even get tapped back into a sense of spirit moving in my life. I mean, I didn't know. So I was willing to risk everything for something very, very basic that then I never sacrificed again. But I also uh, found a, a friend, a mentor, who was doing a kind of shamanic journey work that I began doing, and it included use of substances, mm -hmm. uh, psychoactive medicine. Like uh, ayahuasca or something, I think? Uh, initially, it was uh, ecstasy and psilocybin, and then uh -huh. uh, ayahuasca and psilocybin, uh -huh. kind of the feminine and masculine principles, both. Uh -huh. And I did that for a while, but it really, uh, the, the awakening took place so quickly that I never felt that the, the medicines themselves were the main causes, if you want to call it that, felt like they were uh, secondary aids to a process. And there were only a couple of journeys before my awakening took place. Most Did it take place in the midst of one of those um, sessions of no, taking that stuff no, or later on? Actually, yeah, it, it didn't. In fact, it took place more uh, for a couple of years afterward. I assumed that it, it had taken place in the the during uh, lovemaking with a woman who was my first intimate partner after leaving his work and Mm -hmm. My wife had left me shortly before I left Adidas' work, so I didn't have a relationship until this new relationship started. And it was very clear to me that, that there was this interaction going on with, again, the great feminine, the goddess, that was central to the whole awakening process. Mm -hmm. But the, the work in consciousness matured very rapidly. I had this uh, shamanic mentor who you know, said the right things that I needed to hear at some specific moments. And there was just a deep relaxing into being myself as a human, as a person, as an ego, 
and at the same time tapping into this current and presence of the greater conscious nature that in effect was pressing forward. You know, it, it was realizing me, mm-hmm. uh, not so much me somehow getting out back to it, but there was there was this incarnation going on. I remember when the when the 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 quality of the witness consciousness really opened up simultaneous. It was like it dropped into me, and also I dropped into being a person here more fully at the same time. And it was very obvious that, that there was this kind of kathunk landing going on. Was that kathunk such a, an obvious uh, moment that you could have marked it out a calendar? There was a yeah. certain you know, day. October 14th, 1992. I mean, I, okay. know, 7.30 or so in the morning in my car <laughs> as I'm driving, oh, listening, listening to a Native American flute tape <laughs> and oh. asking my inquiry question that I had come up with on my own during my Adi die years when you weren't supposed to do that kind of thing. You weren't supposed to come up with your own practices, but it had, it had arisen in me. That's the second person I've interviewed who had his awakening while driving. <laughs> Could you almost say that that being, or whatever you want to call it, awoke to itself through the instrumentality of Samuel, and, and that the coming back into your integrity as Samuel was kind of hand-in-hand hand with with that away in other words Samuel had to be integrated and kind of a whole person in order to be a fit reflector or instrument for that being to awaken to itself would that be a correct way of putting it maybe I wouldn't use the language of vehicle or reflector okay Uh, there's a singularity yeah that emerges and uh, we use the language of a divinely human person okay and the the infinite and the finite get fused Mm mm-hmm and uh, both the local persona, which in some ways is the prow of the boat of the total being, you mm-hmm. can say, uh, both the local persona and that more infinite ground or totality or environment um, just become unified in a, a fundamentally peaceful way. Yeah. The, the, the sense of the distinction between the two uh, dissipates and actually it, it, over a couple of years after that I realized wow it's it's so completely dissipated that I I'm not really realistically referring to a consciousness as if it was a something else than totality right good and there, that, there was there. a further deepening for you in the the landing at the restaurant uh, yeah, then, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm really skipping around here. <laughs> uh, but luckily you make time for us. And of course, Linda's got a whole other story. So yeah, we're going to get into that. Yeah, what, what happened was I knew that my awakening process was strongly activated, especially from that day, mid-October of the year 1992. And as it happened, I'd been on my way down to visit uh, down in Ojai, the, the man who was my mentor at that time who is still a teacher, a guy named Brooks Barton, and uh, mm-hmm. a very fine person. And I'm very grateful to him for his help. And at the time, he, he said to me, uh, yeah, it looks like your, your awakening is really kicking in a gear. And there was a beautiful thing he said, by the way, that I want to share with, with you and, and everybody who might uh, listen and watch in the, in the future. I said to him, I said, you know, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, I left the guru in disgrace. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like the last candidate for awakening from the world that I came from. 
And yet it's obvious this is going on. I said, what gives? And he made a great statement I've quoted ever since. He says, well, spirituality is not just evolutionary. It is itself evolving. And so the criteria for qualified candidates for Great Awakening, even the criteria are shifting. The rules are different. Uh, everything's up in the air now. And that was very helpful. Yeah, that's good. I mean, who is to say that the criteria that were, you know, adhered to in the group that you were in had any sort of absolute validity anyway, in any age? There's always something to be said for a certain independence of thinking and, and you know, freedom from slavishness to dogma. I mean, yeah. it, it, there's a time for obedience and there's a time for just sort of breaking out and reevaluating everything. That's right. And and you're you're quite correct. I mean, really, if you look at if you look at the history of spirituality uh, with anything like a close eye, uh, you're going to notice that there is the both and that you were just describing. And there always have been characters whose awakenings have come in that kind of way. Yeah. But then what, what occurred was after several months, I mean, mid-October to early December of 1992, uh, and I began this new relationship, which was obviously to me, my partner was infused with with goddess energy and she was she was completely beside herself not knowing what was going on but I mean I had been around a lot of this kind of thing so I had a strong sense of what was happening and then a couple of days later uh, or maybe the second day that we had come intimate I was sitting in a restaurant one morning and just looked out the window and suddenly there was a very simple recognition it wasn't a big kundalini moment I mean it was completely unnoticeable to anyone around me, it was like, oh, the obviousness was that there was no difference between the inner, quote-unquote, consciousness and the total field of being and consciousness. And the word that came to mind immediately was seamless. And by total field of being, you would also mean like the entire environment that you perceive, exactly. like the restaurant and out the window and everything. The trees, the restaurant, the other right. people, there was a sudden release into unity. Mm. And uh, uh, I often quoted after that uh, one of Adi Da's comments about that kind of transition. He said, you would think that it's uh, you're expanding from a point to infinity. But he said, it's more like a balloon being popped and the, the pressurized air inside being equalized with all space. There's a hmm. sudden equalization, which is actually what the word samadhi means. Hmm. It's an equalization of pressures. Right. So I knew intuitively that, that that was the shift that I had been longing for my whole time of seeking. And shortly after that, this transmission factor came into play, and I began feeling, well, you know, I want company. Let's figure out how to get as many people up and running with this as possible in their own way. You know, there were all kinds of little insights there, like Ramana Maharshi's inquiry, who am I, did not work for me. Adidas' inquiry, avoiding relationship, did not work for me. I had an inquiry that was a little longer, a little more wordy, which is not unusual for me, a little wordy. What is it that is conscious of everything arising? You know, no matter what the body and mind are going through, what is the conscious principle here? My takeaway from that is, oh, everybody's got to find an inquiry that works for them. In many cases, they have to create it themselves on the spot based on what 
if they're going to use a verbal question to help attune themselves, which not everybody does, but those who do, you want one that attunes you most naturally and most directly, rather than assuming that the one that worked for your guru is really empowered by his realization, therefore is going to work for you. Mm. You know, multiple insights of that kind over the years that have contributed to what's made it possible for, you know, among other things, you to talk to seven of 30-odd teachers, and we've got dozens and really hundreds of other people who've essentially awakened in the same way. They wouldn't use the same language, and, you know, if we go nitpicking, which is you know, not a bad thing to do sometimes, you know, what, what factors are present, what factors aren't. Mm -hmm. uh, people are in different states and qualities of it. But fundamentally, there's hundreds of people now who, among other things, aren't exploitable by a quest that they can't fulfill unless they do what someone else tells them to do anymore. Right. Good. Well, that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but that sounds like a good place to, uh, like, you know, take, to, to, we've taken your story up to this point. Now maybe we should hear Linda's. Absolutely. And then we'll, and then we'll kind of come back in and, you know, discuss a bunch of things with both of you. Oh, Sounds great. Thank you. That was wonderful. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> I felt like I was all over the place. <laughs> uh, it was good. Uh, there are a lot of things I would like to have probed into there, but I, you know, we'll we'll get to them. We'll let's talk right. to Linda. Yeah, it's hard to actually fit a lifetime of being here on the planet in this precious body mind, you know, to yeah. uh, consolidate it. But um, I'll do my best and okay. do some. Um, brief conversation here. I was raised in Indiana, a little town called Muncie, Indiana, mm -hmm. and I had five brothers and sisters. My mother is, was a very devout Catholic. My father more of an agnostic, but was supportive of my mother wanting to raise us as Catholics. And so I was raised as a Catholic at a very young age, and down the age exactly, but between seven and nine probably, I found myself going to church and listening to the priest. And one particular day, it was a beautiful sunny day, I'm sitting on the, on the kneeler, you know, with my back to the priest, and I'm so bored, and I'm thinking, I just want to be out playing. And I was listening to him saying that, you know, if you're a good person, I'm very much paraphrasing, you will go to heaven. If you sin, if you are bad, then you will be thrust to hell. And yet... God is an all-benevolent, all-loving God. And I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm thinking, well, how could he be so benevolent if he's throwing his creation into hell, you know, forever? So that, I think, actually was the beginning of my questioning. And I was a very shy, very introverted young, young girl. So for me to even have that question uh, sit in me, I didn't know where to take it, you know, because I was so, I was afraid to go to the nuns. I went to a parochial school. My mom, I asked my mom, and my mom says, go ask your teachers, you know, ask Sister So-and-so, she'll help you. So I did. I mustered up the, the courage, and she says, well, dear, God works in mysterious ways. And, you know, and it was a, a non-answer, really, right. and, and 
you know, a little bit more. And she says, if you want more of an answer, go to the priest. And I, I couldn't do that because that was just way too scary. So at that young age, I started questioning the, the Catholic faith. And yet I was very much still going to church and every Sunday with my mom at that age. And then my mom, as I got a little bit older, my mom had said to me as I was asking questions, she says, you know, when you're old enough to make your own choice about where you want to go in your religious beliefs or in your way in uh, moving in the world, she didn't quite put it like that, but she says, when you're old enough to make your choice, I will support you if you don't want to go to Mass anymore. I'd say around 14 or so, 14, 15, I, I said to her, it does not work for me. I am not feeling it, you know, I'm not in it like you are. And she said, okay, well, just take it slowly and see where you want to go. So eventually I I pretty much stopped going to Mass altogether. And at 18, graduated high school, went into college, put myself through school in Muncie, went to Ball State University, and um, I was a art major with the emphasis on teaching and a music and theater minor. So it was all creative arts. <laughs> and that's how I, I lived my spirituality at the time as I look back on it. I really enjoyed um, creating form, creating artistic things in my major. I had a double major. I had It was actually a triple major. The teaching was the art teaching. I could teach any level. And then I also majored in ceramics and photography. So mm-hmm. that, that was added on. And then I had a minor in music and, and theater. So just loved being on stage. I did a lot of productions in college. I was in a, in a band mm-hmm. in my hometown where we went around all over Indiana and Ohio and other, other places, you know, performing. Singing and guitar? I, I didn't play guitar. I was a oh, singer. Okay. And... Um, and I had the backup band, so I was the lead singer, and, and that was just so much fun for me. I used to play drums in a band. Oh, you did? Yeah, it was oh, great fun. Cool. <laughs> I'll send you a photo. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that was one of the ways that I, I found a, a place where I felt like I really fit, because at, growing up, as I had mentioned, I was so shy that I had to really push myself to break out of that shyness, so I would... In junior high school and high school, I would I would just push myself to audition for things, you know, audition for cheerleader and audition for the plays. And I got the lead in my senior play, Bye Bye Birdie. Oh. And I was so thrilled that I got the lead, even though I was scared to do that big of a role. But it was really, really fun. And I wasn't actually attending mass or anything at that time because mom had given me God bless her, you know, she, she had said, follow your heart, and so I did. And through college, I think I was so preoccupied with my schooling and working and performing in my band and having a full schedule because I, I had to bring money in in order to get myself through school. So uh, spirituality, that wasn't really a direction I had in my early 20s. Or, or, you know, let's see, I graduated in, uh, as I was 22, so, or 21. So when I graduated, I felt the need and the urge to move to California. And so I picked up my stuff and uh, moved in with my sister and her daughter. And that was, I think, the beginning of a real deep 
place where I started searching because we would stay up for hours on end, my sister and I, in the middle of the night, taping our conversations just about the world. Who are we? You know, what are we doing here? And we'd listen back to the tapes, and and it was pretty fascinating. I, I don't know whatever happened to those those cassettes. I'd really love to have them, but they'd kind of disappeared through all the moves. But that's where I started exploring. And in my exploration from there through the years, it was really more of a, I would say, a new age kind of positive uh, thinking kind of path that I went on and dabbled in many other things. And as I, as I got older, that was kind of falling away a little bit, and I was feeling like, that, like there was still something more. I, I still practiced some of the practices of um, writing my affirmations on cards and that sort of thing, but it just didn't seem like it was serving me that much. So that took me into a place where I was dabbling with all kinds of different things. Um, you know, I read Deepak Chopra, and I sat with a man who had more of a kundalini process, and when I uh, um, addressed him, when I went to him, he asked me what I was looking for, and I said, well, I'm, I'm really basically looking for a deeper meditation where I can just go deeper so that I can feel myself more. So that's what I'm really looking for. And, and he said, well, I can help you with that. So we worked a little bit with that, and then I left that. And so I was very eclectic in my, in my seeking. Just, and, just to interrupt yeah. you for a second, one of the things that some of us used to tease Linda about is uh, <laughs> that she was one of the few people we knew who actually really did get all that good affirmation thing working. <laughs> yeah. She was, she had a power walk. I'm getting better good. and better every day in every yeah. way. <laughs> right. And yeah. it actually happened for her and she then matured into, you know, where she's where she then went. Oh, you used to put little post-its on your mirror in your refrigerator and <laughs> They were they were all over my house. <laughs> I would draw pictures of uh-huh. things that I'm trying to attain, you know, like right. maybe a better job or I needed a better car so I do a pic- drew a picture of a car and I looked at that every day and I affirmed, you know. And this was mostly after I had left my first marriage. I divorced my husband and I went out on my own. I had never lived alone ever. And I I just focused and intended to find a place of my own without having to have a roommate. And that financially I was barely scraping by. And it was just like the universe provided. I found this amazing place where it was my own on a little piece of water, a channel that went into the bay, mm. San Francisco Bay. Close to where I lived was this little island. And I used to walk around the island and I'd do my power walks. Mm. And my, my mantra was, with every day in every way, I am getting better and better. My <laughs> grandmother told me that when I was about 10 years old. She had me. I used to go to bed thinking that at night. Yeah. It didn't yeah. work for me, though. And I got teased to no end from some of the people. But as Daniel said, it actually kind of worked in some ways for me because I did really feel good. like I was growing. Yeah. And this was before I met Daniel. I was still mm-hmm. kind of dabbling here and there. And um, I, I would do my power walks, you know, several times around this little island. And then I would go up into the center of the island where it's a hill and it's beautiful trees and bushes mm-hmm. and very rustic with lots of rocks and things and I would sit on the ground 
and I'd meditate. Mm-hmm. And I've I had some phenomenal experiences on that little island hmm. um, with with creatures and with nature and f- the feeling sense of that oneness, that connectedness. One time I was sitting and meditating and I just looked up. It was a beautiful sunny day and I just felt like the trees were, were coming down and embracing me, hmm. all the branches. And then a, a moment later, I noticed to the right, a little moth comes flying over. And then another little moth, two little moths. And they, they just flew right in front of me for a few seconds, you know, these mm-hmm. little moths, this close. And I'm like, hello. <laughs> and it was, I just knew that I, I had just somehow had connected with them. Yeah. So that's been a huge piece of my my process ever since I was little is my connectedness to creatures and mm-hmm. my connectedness to plant life and and the earth. No wonder I was a ceramics major. When I was mm-hmm. little, I would sit out in the yard for hours in the mud, mm-hmm. and I'd bring in these big things of, of water, so I'd create these big mud mesas, you know, mm-hmm. and little people, and I, and I made these little villages out of mud. That was just something that my heart mm-hmm. just kept in pushing me to do. So, mm-hmm. and still today, you know, I not that I build mesas in the mud, but <laughs> <laughs> but I am very, very much adoring my plants. I adore our cat. You know, I mm-hmm. adore the horses that are on the property where we're renting a house. Creatures really speak to my heart. So I've always mm-hmm. seen that as part of my spiritual process and how I show up in the world. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So, yeah, thank you. My wife is like that too. She just totally loves animals and mm-hmm. and uh if she worked at the local animal shelter for 8 years and if you know if, she, if there's anything on television that suggests any sort of pain being inflicted on animals, you know, she just can't watch it. We got to turn uh, the channel. <laughs> That's exactly, I, the instant I know that's it, I'm going, okay, stop it, turn it yeah, off, yeah. turn it off, honey. It, In it's fact, so- I, when we first got together, I, I had her watch um, Little Big Man, oh. you know, and, yeah. uh, and there were all these scenes. But there was one point where they were, they were the, the cavalry was coming in and shooting all the Indians' horses, and, she, and it's like she completely freaked out. They're shooting the horses, you know, oh, we yeah. basically had to turn the movie off or fast forward it or something. I totally can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> a sister in the heart in that way, huh? Yeah. yeah. That's beautiful. I'm living alone. I'm still doing my practices, my affirmations, and I started dating an old friend that I had known for many years, and we ran into each other at a party, and just, oh, very interesting. Let's, let's explore a little bit. Only about a month into our relationship, a housemate of his told us about this amazing man who's doing sittings in Green Bray in his apartment every Sunday. Mm-hmm. And we really should go and sit with this man. And at the time, I was considering around that time to, to start working perhaps with another teacher, which I hadn't sat with yet, but I was very curious. And so I thought, okay, I want to I go check this guy out. And it was Samuel Bonder. And I had connected with Samuel through a magazine called Common Ground. That was a very common magazine in the Bay Area, uh, Marin County. And he had an article in this magazine one time. This was before I, I heard about it from this other woman. I look at his picture, 
And I'm reading his blurb here, but I'm looking at his picture and I'm going, this man looks so kind. And his eyes just drew me in. Hmm. And so I filed it away, Samuel Bonder. Hmm. And then so when this woman said Samuel Bonder, I went, oh, that's the guy I saw in Common Ground. So my boyfriend and I went. And that was October, mid-October of 94. Yeah, Hmm. it was two years after Samuel had started teaching, about a year and a half, two years. Mm -hmm. So I was totally intrigued. A lot of what Samuel was talking about, since we come from very different backgrounds, kind of went over my head. But what I felt as I sat in the room was this amazing presence and authenticity and real realness about Samuel that was very intriguing. And then he would talk about this teaching around the core wound of existence and how individuals feel like there's something more they're intuiting that there's something more and yet they they don't know what that is and so it's so constantly driving them to seek and I'm going that's me and I felt it here in my in my diaphragm in my solar plexus I there was always an emptiness no matter what I did I did several different things gleaned a lot of knowledge and a lot of support from all these different things that I involved myself in and I was, the, I was the kind of person that didn't want to stick around too long if it wasn't feeding that place here. So I'd, I'd glean what I needed and then I'd move on. I did a channeled teaching, Ramtha School of Enlightenment up in Washington for a mm-hmm. while. My sister was very involved in that organization and learned some amazing things. And yet, it still wasn't the thing that I needed. And this was this coincided with my early work with Samuel. I wanted to complete that. I wanted to discriminate and see what else was there for me. And if if I felt like I needed to move on, then I would move on. And so I did a I I did a um, six day retreat with my sister up there in Washington, mm-hmm. and realized afterwards. Good work in some ways, very hyper-masculine in, in, in other ways, and I'm done. Yeah. I've completed this. I feel very finished, and now I can really fully focus on my work with Samuel, and mm-hmm. that's what happened. So over time, as I continued to sit with Samuel, my boyfriend and I went every week, uh, every Sunday. I started asking questions privately to Samuel because I was really shy in the group. I just It was hard for me to speak up. I was very quiet, but listened, listened, listened. And noticed that even though I wasn't understanding some of the dharmic uh, terms that he was talking about, I felt a presence that was actually getting ignited in my body, in my own being. And it wasn't like Samuel was doing something to me. It was really more of me, I believe, gleaning off of his transmission. His transmission was nurturing me to find my own ground and my own strength in my being. And that served me very well. Kept going back. My boyfriend and I broke up after three months, but very friendly breakup. He continued to come to the sittings also and really learned a lot from Samuel. And then eventually, over time, Samuel and I became interested in each other, and that was really exciting. Because <laughs> initially, I wasn't attracted to Samuel uh, as a partner. I was attracted to him definitely as my teacher. 
And right. so, you know, it could have, it's a little tricky situation, a teacher coming on to a student, which he never did. Right. He was so integral and so gentle. And once we started expressing our interest in each other, he says, you are really going to have to make the move because I want to respect the rhythm of your process and and who we are exploring together so i will not i will not come forward you know who i am i will not come forward until you feel it's absolutely necessary for you and i i so appreciated that so we took a very slow mm-hmm. and the initiation happened <laughs> and the the full initiation and we were to, we've been together ever since so that's been 16 years we celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary in december so it's it's about 16 years right and he just so he so opened me up into my own process you know over time i i just was feeling more of an enlivenment i had a witness awakening what Samuel called back in the day, uh, and still still does in Waking Down a Mutuality, the embodied feeling witness. Mm-hmm. I had that awakening, lived that for nine months very consistently, and then I had a deepening of the awakening, which is what in our work we call the second birth, which is a further embodiment of that non-separation, further engagement of being simultaneously consciousness but in form in matter in the body full the, every single part of who you are is that consciousness you know marriage mm-hmm. together so mm-hmm. i experienced that in august of 96 you had something you wanted to say well um just to go back a little bit to the uh when we recognized that there was the possibility of becoming intimate with each other as Linda was saying, you know, to me, particularly as you had indicated, Rick, given what I had observed with people over many years, I knew it was extremely important for me to, to be in, in really the passive mode so that if our relationship didn't work out, you know, we would as best as possible be able to protect. If our intimate relationship didn't work out, we would as best as possible be able to protect or sustain the spiritual connection. Right. You didn't want your personal relationship to damage or jeopardize or yeah, you know, and, sabotage and, her spiritual path. Right. And to, you know, to create those complications of the teacher, in effect, seducing the student and right. all that. And uh, I have to say, Linda was so clear and, in the best sense, self-possessed, so strong in knowing who she was that we were able to go through that and various other adventures. I mean, it wasn't like it was just simple and easy, but the relationship always had this depth and also simplicity to it, uh, mm-hmm. a compatibility that has continued um, more and more delightfully to this mm-hmm. day. So mm-hmm. Great. Indeed. just wanted to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, Linda, is that your story, or should we stop at that point with your story, or is there more that you'd like to unfold before we kind of get into the whole mutual discussion thing? Well, I won't go into the details of the actual awakening itself, but that, for me, was a moment Mm -hmm. in time. I remember it very clearly. It was in the afternoon of um, August 26th, 
94 mm-hmm. and it was 96 or 96 I mean I'm sorry and it was it, it was very clear that that was the the landing the the there was a teaching always talking about consciousness recognizing itself to be mm-hmm. consciousness as you as form as con- you know and I'm early on I go what what are they talking about you know I was a very logical linear kind of thinker so things needed to make sense to me and that never made sense I couldn't put a finger on it until I actually realized it in that realization Mm -hmm. because as living the witness quality my feeling sense of the witness was always hovering here behind my left shoulder that's interesting I've heard others say that Mm mm-hmm yeah. yeah. So I knew In fact, there's this book, I don't know if you've ever read it, called Collision with the Infinite by uh, Suzanne Siegel. Yeah. And um, she had had a spiritual background and all, and, and but had sort of drifted away from it and was, you know, living in Paris and pregnant and just coming back from a swimming lesson. And she, and she was getting on a bus one day and all of a sudden, boom, you know, there was this awakening and, she, and there was, she totally lost all sense of a personal self at that point yet felt like there was some kind of observer over her left shoulder you know and in her case she didn't know what was going on it freaked her out and she spent 10 years in in terror before she kind of came to terms with it and realizing realized it had been a spiritual awakening but i don't don't want to diverge into that story but the 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 over the left shoulder thing is i've heard it's not the first time i've heard that yes yes that that sometimes people will call it more of a like a background yeah. Organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that it wasn't complete until that sitting where the this sense, and even though, you know, logically I knew consciousness was everywhere and you can't really locate consciousness, but in that sitting what had happened was that it, that feeling sense came like that and hmm. literally knocked me backwards. Were you sitting and, with Samuel at that point? Yes, yes. Okay. Okay. Both awakenings happened in a meditation with Samuel and uh-huh. others in the room. I see. Yeah. So yeah. that's what happened, in, in, and I knew that that was second birth. I knew that was the piece that I was missing. Hmm. So it was very powerful. Great. And I loved the teaching that Samuel always had in his sittings. He'd say, I'm looking for company. I'm looking for people who find it just a natural desire and need in their being to show up. And it doesn't necessarily mean they'll be a teacher of this particular work, just showing up in their own creative arts, in their own teachings, however your being moves you in the world. I'm looking for people to realize and to bring their gifts. And that was another thing that I just went, yes, yes, yes. And back in the day, I never thought I'd be a teacher of this work because I felt a little too shy but after my second birth two months later I said to or about six weeks later actually I said to Samuel I feel like the mother's milk is backing up in me because he can talk (laughs) about that and I'd say I have to give somehow I want to start doing sittings yeah so I did I did my weekly sittings that's great that's pretty much P.S. the shyness disappeared the instant after the awakening because she really, I mean, literally up to that point, Linda would hardly ever speak, like in the in the sittings. And uh, on my side, I'm sitting there, and uh, while people were meditating, I, I often had my eyes open. And so I noticed, I, I could tell from the expression on her face and just the feeling around her that something was going on. So after the meditation ended that day, I, I said, what's happening? And then she proceeded to 
explain it to us, and her language was extremely <laughs> salty and vivid. <laughs> yeah, we were all like, okay, here she is. <laughs> it's like, who just walked into Linda, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So, so uh, and, and another thing that I want to add also is, that was a very ecstatic meditation mm-hmm. for you. Yes. The very next morning, Linda had in her meditation, and the awakening was obviously established, but there was this visionary process that opened up where one after another, the faces of humanity came forward and into her, and, and she felt everyone's suffering so profoundly mm. that she was literally wailing. Wow. Maybe like you never had before. Uh, never, ever had I felt that. And it, it, it started slowly, visions of the, all cultures, all ages of, of faces, you know, coming at me. And it was, then it sped up, and it, was, it dropped me into the pain of the world. It, wow. it just yeah. took me right there, and I, I couldn't stop sobbing. I don't know how long it, it lasted, but I was hmm. held. And, yeah. and that's, was that's continued to be a very primary uh, factor and attribute of Linda's, not only your realization, but also your transmission and your service to others. It's not that uncommon, as you were describing, Rick, in terms of your wife. What's your wife's name? Irene. Irene. So, yeah. Uh, but in, in Linda, this is a particularly pronounced attribute, and she really has to work with it, like Irene. I mean, there's only so much footage of tsunamis yeah, that you can, can watch. We can expose her to, and then she says, you've got to change the channel. I'm huh. saturated. I'm broken open. Interesting. I remember like decades ago, I asked my TM teacher some question about the pain of the world or something, and she, she said, be an ocean. And, you know, if you think about that metaphor, if you ha- just have a glass of water and you try dissolving some mud in it, it gets muddy pretty fast. But if you have an ocean, you can throw bucket loads of mud in and uh, it, you know, it tends to dissolve. So it's kind of like, you know, when you achieved oceanhood, you know, you were able to sort of start processing all this pain in the world, you know, and perhaps on some esoteric level, you're actually helping to heal it and resolve it by, you know, it's not just some visual hallucination you're having. It's more like an actual subtle, um, you know, washing machine effect that you're having. Thank you. That's beautifully put. Mm -hmm. I I really feel that, you know, I, I do feel that that is just part of my being and how I have to show up in the work that I do in the world. You know, Kuan Yin, by the way, is is one of my deities. You know, Mm -hmm. she's my girl. She started the Chinese image of Mother Divine. Yeah, the the goddess of compassion. And I've always been a very empathetic person, even as a child. In high school, I was known as the Dear Abby of my high school. Everybody (laughs) knew they could come to me and just dump anything, and I'd hold the confidence very sacred, and I always did that. Hmm. But and I'd I'd just be there with them and listen deeply. So that's just been part of my character, I think, even growing up. I've often heard that you know it's said that <clears throat> yogis in the Himalayas and so on, who aren't even doing anything much externally, are actually kind of helping to hold the world together by virtue of their presence. And Amachi, you know, hugging saint. One, I've heard her say that someone asked her something about what happens when you go to bed at night or when you when you're in your quiet time which she has very little of, but she said, you know, she said, all my devotees' prayers and all the pain of the world just sort of comes to me and I heal it. So it's like she never stops. 
Yeah, and that's different adepts are arranged differently in relation to these kinds of phenomena. D- different roles to play. Right, but but it really is a 24-7 event. Yeah. There's a process between us where we fairly early worked out. When we do sittings with, with people, at the beginning we gaze with one another, which is, as you know, one of our processes we, mm-hmm. we teach and, and, and use as a transmission technique, so to speak. And then at the end, we do that again. And if Linda's wound up taking on a lot, I mean, oftentimes in sitting, she'll say to people, if I start crying when I'm looking at you, don't take it personally. Mm-hmm. It may or may not be associated with particular emotions, but it's just part of what's happening. But at the end, we'll gaze with one another. And somehow, mysteriously, she downloads to me mm-hmm any kind of excess. And my nature is such that there's an easier incineration or dissipation release. It it feels like I'm more fiery, she's more watery, you could say. It's interesting. Yeah. But it's interesting that you're able to sort of do that process. I mean, I think most people have a kind of a shell that prevents them from being open to all this and uh you know obviously in your awakening you lost your shell (laughs) but obviously shells serve a dual purpose they're they're you know they're they keep what's supposed to be in in and what's supposed to be out out uh but if you're both in and out if you're kind of if you've sort of achieved a a larger status then maybe the shell is superfluous i mean i love the way you just put that there's still pieces that have to stay in and other pieces that have to stay out and so there's something happening multidimensionally here, and you have to learn how to navigate or manage. And everybody finds out they've got a different calling, different capabilities. And uh, that's part, part of the beauty of communities of individuals coming into this, each with their own unique persona and so forth. One mm-hmm. of the great things, by the way, about Fairfield, where you're living, Rick, other than Ted and Hillary, who were at a distance, the, the other Waking Down and Mutuality teachers you talk to are right there in Fairfield. Yeah. So people in Fairfield get to see a whole bunch of different personalities manifesting this according to their own temperament and constitution. And there are a lot of other awakened people in Fairfield who yeah. aren't into waking down but doing right. their own thing. It's just kind of a happening place. Yeah. Um, incidentally, I'm really enjoying this conversation. And if we get to a point where we feel like, boy, there's so much more that we could talk about, but we've been going on for so long, mm-hmm. let's make it a two-part if you have the time. Uh, okay. You know? So let's let's not rush, and we'll just kind of keep doing stuff. And if we feel like, all right, this is enough, we can do a second part, maybe next week or sometime or whatever works for you. Yeah. That would be wonderful. Oh, thanks. Thank Great. you. I have some questions here. I told somebody I was going to be interviewing you guys, and I have some questions that somebody sent in. And perhaps I could read them, and that would kind of springboard us into more of a discussion about waking down itself and the whole process of what it entails and what it can do for people and all. So here we go. The first question was, can some people wake up into their conditioning? In other words, can the neurosis, or in some cases psychosis, still be running the show after the wake-up? And if so, wouldn't it be difficult, if not impossible, to go back and attempt to alter the persona following the wake-up? Great question. Really great question. To me, I, I, I think that's what does happen. You wake up, or in our language, you wake down as you are. In my first book, The White Hot Yoga of the Heart, I've got a, uh, an essay, if I can remember the title, 
take a mugshot of the body-mind exactly as it is, that's who's going to awaken, warts and all. What we're discovering is that this, in some ways, maybe that's been happening all through history anyway, but the old schools typically required a lot of purificatory preparation of the human character before people would even be considered candidates for ultimate awakening and the challenges that it would bring forth. Yeah, in fact, some of the old school teachers uh, went so far as to say, you better clean that stuff up before you awaken, otherwise you'll be stuck with it. And yeah, I mean, yeah. Patanjali's whole path of Ashtanga yoga, you know, right. that uh, you're supposed to sort of like move all these things along simultaneously so you don't get lopsided. Right, and go through sequentially from taking responsibility for the gross body-mind and then the energetic system and the various levels of mind and so forth. Mm -hmm. And you'd have to achieve mastery before you'd get initiated into the next stages. Yeah. And what we see happening in our time appears to be some kind of a new format emerging, a new model of how maturity is reached or the, you know, the greatest possible wholeness and self-mastery even, where... These great awakenings do appear to be taking place and stabilizing in people who haven't fulfilled the ancient or medieval criteria for what your character is supposed to be like, what qualities of competence and proficiency you have in various preliminary yogas and so forth. Characters are waking up who are much, we could say, more raw rather than cooked. And then what we're seeing is the post-awakening process is when we get to grow into our full humanness. Now, there's a caveat here. Linda and I talk about this on our DVDs that I think you have a copy of, Awaken Radiant. Some people are just plain old way too compromised, at least with respect to our process, which is very powerful. There's a, an enormous energetic that tends to get activated in people. It makes for changes. And if a person is significantly beyond neurotic and into psychotic, this is going to be bad news. Not only at the level of they might get that much more crazy inflated, that's possible, but also, as you were suggesting, uh, it becomes difficult to impossible for them to find the will and the wherewithal to do the work to achieve a fundamental healing or wholeness that produces an integrated ego an integrated adult ego that's capable of enduring the paradoxes and the challenges of the awakened life. And can they even achieve the awakened life? I mean, maybe they're so damaged, so screwed up, to use that terminology, that, that you know, it's just like not going to be very f possible for them to awaken in that condition and maybe some other yeah. maturation and healing mm -hmm. and stuff has yes. to take place before it's even feasible or you know realistic yeah. to expect. One or the other of those two, if they do awaken, that's not necessarily a good thing for them. Yeah. In other words, they can have an expanded consciousness, but that tends to produce even crazier, crazy people to be yeah. blunt about it. We have had that in our work, actually, where the individuals have been psychologically and emotionally a bit compromised, you know, levels of minds again. Their development is very weak, perhaps, in those areas, and yet they, their being opens up to the realization of consciousness. Mm -hmm. But as Samuel was pointing out, it can really create a lot of distress and turmoil 
even in the awakened condition. Because in this work, it's not just about the absolute transcendence of matter and form and life. It is thrusting you down in it even more fully. Right. You're, you're way more aware, you're way more sensitive, you're way more conscious in the midst of this awakening. Yeah. In the TM world, there's this sort of um, understanding that you don't really awaken or get enlightened, as the, the term they might use, or cosmic consciousness, another term that's used, until until a fairly high degree of perfection has been achieved in terms of purity of the nervous system, and it's assumed that that, that purity of physiological functioning is going to correlate with uh, you know highly advanced degrees of emotional development and uh, psychological health and and so on and I haven't necessarily seen that pan out in practice it also has I think in some cases been a stumbling block for people because they feel like well I feel so imperfect that it just ain't gonna happen for me you know in this lifetime you know, I've been doing this for 30 40 years and it seems like I've still got a long way to go so I might as well give up on the hope of of awakening so it's like you can look at it both ways thank you my my feeling all along has been well, I clearly wasn't some kind of perfected being when I awakened. Let's try something else. Because th that factor you just pointed to of the, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not good enough. Right. You know, I'm deficient. I'm defective. I don't seem to be able to do it. That's been so much of the history of spirituality. So our work is a kind of experimental gamble that says, you know, again, going back to that original language, let's, let's, uh, let's get uh, as many people cooking with this as possible. Find ways to keep helping one another to grow and, and to, to refine the human character. And I, I really feel that a new, I think in, in, in time, you know, over generations, centuries, I have a very strong suspicion that, uh, uh, the the old view of spirituality is going to be supplanted mm -hmm. by a different kind of human wholeness hmm. that um, <clears throat> in which the kind of awakening we're talking about this fundamental fusion of spirit and matter this this unification and the further growth a la the the integral uh, orientation of uh, structural growth or growth along various different lines of development will be something that we go through after that basic awakening and we'll wind up seeing qualities something like traditional uh, capabilities and sensitivities that we've seen in, in uh, traditional yogis and saints and sages and so forth mm. will be attained by people or grown into is a better word in the post-awakening sequences where they're mm. no longer looking for the fundamental unification that's a given right but the body mind continues to evolve and mature and refine so it's really a different developmental model actually well considering the the acceleration that seems to be taking place in the world we may not be talking about centuries one thought that just occurred to me as you were saying that is that maybe the case is that a couple thousand years ago when we had the Buddha and these, these great 
sages and the, uh, of antiquity, the sort of membrane that had to be pierced to awaken was so thick that you pretty much had to be a perfected being in order to have the oomph to pierce through it, you know, to break through into enlightenment. And these days, it's been pierced so many times, you know, by so many people, and the whole pace of world consciousness is accelerating so quickly that the bar for entry has been lowered to a great extent and and you know with a much lesser degree of perfection or, or personal development one can break through into that conscious awakening you think there's something to that i do do you want to respond or shall i i do and at the same time i also feel that the whole worldview underneath what enlightenment means what spirituality is about is itself evolving and uh, a simple, as essentially as I can state it, to me what, what has appeared to be the case is that in human prehistory, uh, we were simply embedded. Most humans were embedded in, in nature, in our tribal clan identity. Uh, and, you know, there were a few heroic characters who would break through and they would be the great leaders, the great kings, the great sages, whatever. And at some point in the conventional view of history, you know, not trying to take into account legends of Atlantis and all that, but, you know, the history that we can trace archaeologically, somewhere between 10 and 5,000 years ago, we in effect went through a transition from being so embedded in material nature. You could say it was a, a hyper-feminine quality of consciousness that had almost no distinct differentiated self-awareness and what occurred was that uh, around the, the globe I mean in many different cultures suddenly humanity began moving toward uh, agriculture and then city-states toward literacy and toward more and more people beginning to have a differentiated self-awareness although it's been a long, slow process over centuries and millennia. But what that produced, in my view, was a kind of, the, the force of the differentiation became a dissociation, mm. a cutoff. And in the classic East, that took the form of, okay, what's going on here? This is a snake pit of karma, of mm. endless craving and desire and grasping and, you know, lifetime after lifetime, let me out of here. Right. Classic Eastern orientation is escape into ultimate transcendence. And there have been great arguments. What is the great, the true liberation? I mean, that's a big deal for the classic traditional Eastern practitioner. In the classic West, as it evolved, especially a bit later, I mean, there was the Greeks and Romans, but then at a later point, starting you know, uh, in the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and so on, the disposition was more that of the differentiated and dissociated mind. And so the mind is able to look at material nature, and you have people like Sir Francis Bacon saying, you know, we must torture her secrets out of nature, <clears throat> put her to the rack. I mean, you literally have that kind of language. It's expressive of Again, I use that term hypermasculine because it's it's so isolated into itself that it's dissociated. It's mm -hmm. not just differentiated. So to me, what I see 
apparently taking place in our time is the beginning of a really epochal shift, a another great evolutionary sequence that, you know, yeah, there's tremendous acceleration of change going on, but my hunch is that to work out all the kinks of this, uh, particularly with the world as wild as it is these days, uh, you know, it's more likely to be generations and centuries than weeks and months and a few years. Uh, I wouldn't say a few, but if you if you think how much the world has changed in the last hundred years, though, yes, you know, it's I mean, true. airplanes, computers, the atomic bomb, and all the things that have happened in our lifetimes, even, it's it's pretty radical change, and and everyone everyone seems to say that the, the pace of it keeps accelerating. So. And, and I I agree with that, and at the same time, the what it takes for something beyond a few people on the leading edge even if that's hundreds of thousands or multiple millions, what it takes for humanity to outgrow its deep-rooted fundamentalisms and so forth. Yeah, there's a lot to clean up. Uh, uh, there's a lot, but <laughs> I, I, I do completely acknowledge it. Yeah. It feels like the whole thing is not, it's not only evolving, it's accelerating. Yeah. Do you want to add to that, Linda, before I go on to the no. next question? I think that was pretty complete. Thank you. Okay, good. Here's another question um, this person asked. She said, Embodiment, as I see it, and as Adyashanti speaks of it, is coming back into the body after having been to the mountaintop, but this time with the ego dissolved and not wanting to, not only wanting to serve the world, excuse me, and only wanting to serve the world, not our own self-interests. And perhaps I could add to this question this whole notion of dissolving the ego, which seems to be really big in, in many spiritual circles these days. You know that you're you're really not a person. There's no one home. That you don't need to do spiritual practices because that implies that there's someone to do them. You should just give up the search. Yada yada yada. What do you say to all that? Yes, thank you. <laughs> yes, through the ages, there's been this consideration, not even reaching the goal at the mountaintop and then coming back down to the body. You know, some traditions, you don't even come back down to the body, you know, as, as right. you were just speaking, you know, this place of, this is all illusion anyway. Um, in our process, we've actually had some people say, first you wake up, then you wake down, but that's mm -hmm. not really how it happens. For some who enter into the waking down mutuality work, they may have had, prior to even encountering us, a very transcendental kind of realization. And they're feeling and intuiting that there's more to their realization, and so they're intrigued by the embodiment aspect of this work. So mm -hmm. in second birth, quite often, it is the simultaneity of consciousness and matter realizing itself, non-separate, non-dual. You're there. So it's not that you have to have the, the consciousness piece prior to the embodied piece. They, they coincide in second birth awakening quite often. And as far as perfecting the ego or, or living a life of serving others and not being concerned about self. Or even having an ego. I mean, yeah, I mean do you guys feel like you have egos? I mean, there, there's so many people I talk to who say, there's no one home. You know, life, <laughs> life without a center. Uh, Guilty there's, there's... as charged. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, you know, I, I adore my ego. <laughs> yeah. 
because, uh, you know, as Samuel has pointed out for years, you know, you can't get out of the bed in the morning and fix yourself a cup of tea or comb your hair without an ego, right? Mm. Uh, Now, however, you you don't want the ego to run rampant in its, its place of control and dissociating from individuals right you know you don't want it to be solely about oneself you don't want to be narcissistic in the ego but there is the balance there is the there is the realization and the conscious aspect of who you are that embraces that place of ego and then you can actually move from more of a whole being. When, when we say whole being, we really mean it. It's every part of who you are, even the ego. Mm-hmm. And, and seeing and also getting reflected to the times when the ego gets a little bit, you know, out of whack. You're going to have people coming to you and going, you know, that's a little too strong right there. You're, you're constantly adjusting. You're constantly learning and evolving even after second birth, you know, some people look at the awakening itself and, and say, well, that's the goal, you know, that's where I want to go. But uh, it's, as Samuel says, it's second birth, you know, you got to get a life afterwards and you have to continue to grow, evolve and serve others and serve yourself too. It's not merely just serving others from a, a selfless, altruistic place. You have to take care of self in order to take care of others. So that's kind of how we, we feel it, we live it. And again, if you're imbalanced, if you're really doing your work in mutuality, you're going to have trusted friends and others and teachers and mentors saying, reflecting to you, there, right there, that's a piece where you can look at and adjust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to add to that, I, I, There's a lot more to say about yeah. this. but were you gonna Well, I was just going to say... Um, you know, there are a lot of people that I've interviewed and have yet to interview who fall into this so-called neo-advaita basket. Just yesterday, I received an e- email from somebody saying, hey, what's with all this neo-advaita bashing that you do? And I wouldn't think of myself as bashing, but I often bring up the topic because it perplexes me. And I actually don't know quite how to interview these people because there's so much of an emphasis on their not being a person. You know, It's not that you get out of bed in the morning and brush your hair and fix your tea. It's that hair is brushed, tea is fixed, yeah. you know, but there's no one doing it. And there's there's such a strong emphasis on that. And, you know, I, I'm not one to sort of dispute people's experience. Maybe that's the way they experience the world. I can't say yeah. they don't. But I wonder, like, is, am I missing something? Because that's not how I experience the world. I mean, I experience, you know, the sort of the impersonal, silent, nothing is happening quality. But also I feel like, you know, like I can be driving down the road at 70 miles an hour and have the distinct feeling that there's nobody driving the car. And yet there is somebody driving the car, yeah. you know, so passengers yeah. can relax. And so, so to me, it's both, you know. Yeah. But these people who, sell, who emphasize so heavily on their not being a person and then extrapolate from that that you should give up the search or you shouldn't do practices because practices imply that there's a practicer. You're only reinforcing a sense of individuation. I haven't fully grokked that whole perspective. Yeah, well, thank you. And that's why I say I feel like this is a, it's an enormous consideration. And, and it's right at the center of the spiritual debate for however long we're going to be going through it. And, and, you know, we were in some ways being playful a minute ago, you know, guilty as charged. Uh, People could read that very wrongly. 
Um, to me, that that kind of language, uh, that that whole perspective, is a kind of fetishism for a certain quality that is possible in awakening processes. Classically, in in Indian Advaita language, people would say things like, "I've realized the self. Now I'm free to die," hmm. because. Among other things, the world doesn't matter. It's all an illusion anyway. I mean, one of my all-time favorite great Advaita lionesses was a woman named Brahmagnyama who lived in the mid-20th century. And she was so radical, she wouldn't even take disciples. Mm-hmm. She said, you know, you don't exist. Right. Nothing exists. I mean, if you're going to get me to open my mouth on this stuff, trust me. Nothing exists. Realize that. Leave me alone. And so there is an authentic possibility that many people are having more or less profound realizations of where the immersion in that impersonal expanse of existence is so profound that the in uh, the Sanskrit, uh, one of the terms is the antakarana, the the local psychic ego structure. For all intents and purposes, doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And the person goes around without such a thing, which for some people it can be very pleasurable and harmonious and full of flow. You know, I, there's no doer. Another piece of way of languaging it. Mm -hmm. For other people, the shock of that, and I've met people, in fact, in Fairfield. uh, I've met people who, for whom, when that realization awakened, they were not ready for it, and it took them years. Kind of like the Suzanne Siegel story Mm -hmm. you mentioned. And so what is emerging now, and I really want to credit Ken Wilber's work, the whole integral orientation, the combining not only of psychology, but of developmental understanding of all the different aspects of a human character. And our work, Genpo Roshi, whatever his current troubles and issues are, Big Mind is a huge innovation made by a credentialed Zen master who is a lineage steward. And I know he's, you know, stepped aside for the time being and you know, blessings. He's a friend of ours. We, we yeah. love Genpo. I interviewed him a few months ago and really enjoyed it. And we were yeah. supposed to do another one like the next week or something. And then uh-huh. the whole thing broke, you uh-huh. know. And so I emailed him. I said, whenever you feel ready, I'll, you know, the point is, and I remember Genpo and us uh, talking with one another uh, at a, a meeting at an integral conference. And he said, you know, my traditional guru or uh, Roshi, my, my Zen master, couldn't have gone where I'm going. Mm-hmm. And we were saying, you know, same, same with my teacher. That something new is emerging here that, among other things, doesn't require that radical obliteration of the sense of a local mm-hmm. self in order for realization to be authentic. And furthermore, politely but firmly argues maybe that's not really the ultimate state. Mm -hmm. Maybe that is a stage along the way that actually human realizers need to outgrow. Yeah. And that, by the way, was one of Adi Das' contributions, a very vigorous, 
argument toward a greater integration. Now, his way of living it was, as I said earlier, not a model. But something else is emerging now that's, I feel, what you're giving voice to is the more likely future of human beings than that the sense of an egoless flow state. And I also want to add, again, for every person who gets to be living that stably and can happily say, yep, no problem, the I that was here is gone, and I'm certain of it, there are dozens if not hundreds or thousands who can't get there and, as you mentioned earlier, start to despair and lose hope and figure I can't do it in this lifetime, I'm too much of an ego. So we've got a big debate getting underway here. Yeah. Incidentally, I know a couple people who, one of whom I've interviewed already, um, Scott Killaby, and another whom I'm going to interview, Jeff Foster, who did just as you said, they, they kind of went through that stage of there being no person and so on, and heavy emphasis on that, and the world is an illusion, and then have kind of grown out of that, and they're now talking in a more kind of holistic way. Like Jeff tells this story about taking a walk with his mother, and his mother points out, oh, look at that beautiful tree, and he goes into this whole heavy rap with her about how there is no tree and there is no person and all and you know and now he kind of kicks himself when he when he thinks about that (laughs) and you know one of the very interesting moments we met uh one of the current invited teachers quite some years ago about a decade ago and uh, you know obviously dharmically we're on slightly different wavelengths and you know we could agree that we, we have some disagreements and made a nice connection and then uh a few weeks or months later, I forget when exactly, we just got a like one-line email from him. Uh, a number of invited teachers had gathered at some hot springs and had a retreat together. These are all people who had been tutored, uh, uh, they'd taught, been taught by Papaji, mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, who was a disciple of Ramana. Sure. And uh, he, he wrote and he said, you know, I just want to let you know that we all agreed that something like what you call waking down into life is really where the process seems to be taking us. Oh, cool. And, uh, you know, how they each speak with respect to the ego. I mean, the woman was quoting Adi Ashanti. You know, there there are different emphases. Yeah. But there's a lot of ferment around this this big issue. And it's really important because if people can be empowered to awaken without feeling like they've got to continue to go to war on their ego and everything associated with it, all their weirdo desires, all their emotional reactivity, all of the, the quirky animal stuff that supposedly they're supposed to be beyond, if that war comes to an end, what we discover is suddenly people have got a lot more free energy and attention to awaken. Cool. Well, I won't feel so guilty about harping on it as often as I do. <laughs> you know, yeah, it does seem important right? to me, and, it, it, and it's a little bit perplexing to me because I sort of feel like, well, maybe they, they've got something that I don't understand. But you know, it's, it's reassuring to, to, to have this conversation with you because I, I feel intuitively that it's only half the picture. Yep. And you know, certs is both a candy mint and a breath mint. It doesn't have to be one or the other. You know, <laughs> you know, I, I should I should probably send you a copy, and I think I think we will, Rick, uh, as a as a gift to you. We'll send you a copy of my first book, The White Hot Yoga of the Heart. Actually, I read it years ago. You can send me a copy anyway. I listened to it on an audio tape one time when we were driving down to New Mexico years ago, and That's a and book. Uh, oh, okay, sorry. This was yeah, like yeah. ten years ago. I listened that to it. That was probably waking down. There was a lot of white hot in it. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, and that's true of waking down. But the white hot yoga of the heart is uh, a bit more colorful, mm-hmm. uh-huh. uh, we could say. And and I was also really in my young Turk days, and I felt I felt very much alone. And I was kind of going to war with this whole perspective. And uh-huh. uh, I have some sterner comparisons to make about what that apparently liberated. But from, from this more embodied perspective, it's an encapsulated and isolated state of consciousness that seems to be, it calls itself non-dual. But in some ways, you know, there's a legitimate perspective from which it may be the height of a kind of very subtle but completely impenetrable dualism. You know, like, like the guy saying, the, the tree doesn't exist. Again, there's a lot more to this discussion, and I'm glad we can get into it. Yeah, no, please do. I'll read it. And, and if you have it in audio version, send that, because I have more time to listen to things than I have to read them. But, Unfortunately, uh, that one's too big. So yeah. Okay, I'll read it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I feel like, well, I have one more question here. Maybe we could end with this question, and then, as I suggested, maybe we could have a follow-up, because I feel like we could continue this conversation, but it's been almost two hours, and that's yeah. probably enough for anybody to listen to, right. even in segments. Um, so let me give you one more question, and then we'll, we'll take a break, and... Um, We'll come back for part two. And so this is the question that this woman asked me who, to ask you. Why does it have to be taught when it seems to be a completely natural evolution of a self-realized soul? And I think she's referring to the sort of, if, you've, if you're self-realized, why do you have to do anything else to sort of actualize or, or wake down or you know, become a more holistic human being when it's just going to happen anyway naturally? Mm. That's, I think that's the question. Well, for some, it, it is very graceful, and it can happen naturally if, the, if they're doing their work in the ways mm-hmm. that they need to do their work. But for most individuals, really do need to be guided and had suggestions given to them in order to make the choices, you know, to make what I like to call skillful, willful choices, mm-hmm. conscious choices. And, and so... The guidance um, goes right back also to mutuality, where you can do a level of work on your own, and you can also have the feeling sense of, well, we're all one, aren't we, anyway? And this is true. We are interconnected. But that's not individual's truth until you actually embody it and realize it, you see. So... So it can be a, con- a concept, and you can live from that place of going, well, yeah, I'm, I'm just connected with everyone, and I don't need anything else. That may work for some, but others very much need the support and the suggestions and the guidance. And in this, in this work, very much the transmission of waking down a mutuality. All mm-hmm. re- religions, paths, spiritual processes have a specific kind of transmission, we're all transmitting. This work has a very specific kind of transmission of awakened being force where the teachers and the mentors are entrusted to help individuals template off of that transmission of being. That's a very activating force and it really enables one to hear the suggestions and feel their internal impulses more readily. It, it activates that, that self-questioning, that, that, that guidance in oneself, the transmission. So these are all just bullet point 
things that I'd like to respond to that. Do you feel that if a person, that, that it's possible that a person could awaken genuinely and yet through some sort of negligence or inattention or disinterest or whatever get stuck at a certain point mm -hmm. in their way and, and not and sort of miss out on more glorious possibilities mm -hmm. that they should take a more proactive role even after awakening to yes. unfold everything that could potentially be unfolded yeah. I mean, that's, absolutely right you know to us it, it's about the the uh, the awakening and empowerment of not only a new consciousness but also a new kind of human character I mean, a new kind of character, a different way for humans to be in the world that, that goes beyond being on one side or the other of what we call the spirit-matter split. And, and that leading then to the development of a new culture. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of our urgency in this argument, if you want to call it that, uh, goes to in response to this uh, this lady's question well yeah I mean if you don't feel the need mm -hmm. for help or for further work um, blessings on your journey mm -hmm. but we're looking to find people who recognize that that it's not enough to come into this kind of sublime state and sort of hope others may someday as well, that we've got work to do on this planet. And there's a, there's a kind of narcissism in that uh, sort of flow consciousness, which, you know, again, like uh, your friends who were talking about, you know, I lectured my mother, there's no such thing as a tree there. Well, when you embody more, like Linda, you know, the day after her awakening, and you land here on this planet more fully. To us, there's a lot of work to be done. And it, it's going to take not only people who've come into an awakened state of consciousness, but also people who have refined all kinds of skills. And not, not only, by the way, relatively spiritual skills, but business skills, political right. skills, right. You know, uh, leadership skills in all kinds of fields. Because as long as we're not doing that, we are letting people who are profoundly undeveloped in these ways really control massive amounts of human society in ways that are very unconscious, driven by, as we saw in the last financial collapse, massive uh, you know, cultural mistakes such as uh, institutionalized greed. Yeah, I mean, if you watch that documentary Inside Job, the guys that yeah. were primarily behind that whole thing are, you know, running around spending thousands of dollars every night on cocaine and prostitutes, you know, and yeah. those are the people that were <laughs> running our, our economy. So, you know, so, so from, from our perspective, I mean, we're, we're actually in this next phase of our work, we're uh, founding what we're going to call Human Sun University. And its focus is to awaken and empower leaders for the third millennium and to contribute, you know, yeah, the awakening thing, the way we look at it, it's, it's kind of stage one. It's very important, but, you know, Linda quoting again, it's, it's just a birth. I mean, it's literally just the beginning of a new life. And we want to help people develop a perspective where 
they not only want to bring forward their gifts, but they feel, and I appreciate this is more and more in Integral and other groups as well, more and more of an obligation. Mm-hmm. You know, find out what you're here to do that's, that works for you, that makes your soul sing, and do it because the world needs you to come forward. Great. That's a good stopping point. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to listen to this myself and write down any questions that think I think of while I listen to it. I'm going to get it up on the web as quickly as possible, and I invite anybody who watches or listens to it to email me, rick at batgap.com, or post messages on batgap.com, which you'll also see a place to do, any questions you may have for Samuel and Linda, and we will do a follow-up uh, hopefully the, the next interview in the series and um, if all goes smoothly and quickly technologically speaking uh, we'll have some window of time for you to post questions and I can a- ask those and in that follow-up we'll talk more about the things Samuel just alluded to this university and you mentioned a stage one so we'll hear about whatever other stages there may be this has been fun Thank you very much. Those who have been listening or watching in whatever way you have found this can come to batgap.com. That's an acronym for Buddha at the gas pump. That's B-A-T-G-A-P. There you will find all the interviews that have been done so far. You can subscribe to an email uh, newsletter there, and you won't be bombarded with emails. You'll just get about one a week whenever a new interview comes up and notifying you of it. There's also sort of discussion groups that happen there. Uh, if you want to participate in those. Um, you can all, you'll also see links to a podcast. If I have one guy, I've mentioned this a couple of times, but he, he listens to these while riding horses in northern Arizona, mending fences. Um, wow. So, uh, Talking about the, Buddha at the gas pump. Yeah. Right. Uh. <laughs> uh, so if you're the podcast kind of person, you can subscribe to the podcast. Personally, I can't sit in my computer chair any longer than I do, and I listen to a lot of stuff on my iPod. So anyway, thank you very much for listening or watching. Thank you, Samuel and Linda, and we will see you next week.